uh, our own spiritual awakening path uh, relative to the teaching and the inspiration from the Bhagavad Gita. And as we talked about the last two days, the setting is pretty much set up. We have uh, come to the place where our our hero, Arjuna, who represents the seeking self, represents each one of us. So here we are, and we're on the field of Dharmakshetra, Kurukshetra. This is Dharma is righteousness, virtue, uh, morality. So this is the field. And also, Kurukshetra, Kuru is uh, passion, base desires, uh, addictions, habits, conditionings. So we have this field where on one side we have the, the spiritual awareness and this aspiration. On the other, ha- other side, we have what we experience and what we think of too often as normal life and all of the challenges and obstacles and problems that come with that. And so here we sit as the seeking soul in between these two characteristics, these, tr- these two uh, opportunities for moving forward. So, so the Bhagavad Gita is a metaphor, and the field where this battle is to take place is life. This is our life all the time. And we, have, we all have had uh, occurrences in the past where we have been in the middle of this field. We have been experiencing the dark night of the soul. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to proceed. Things are not working. We're suffering. And where do we go? Where do we turn? So this is where we come to at the end of the first chapter. Arjuna has looked at the situation, looked at life, and cannot figure out, you know, what the solution can possibly be. Um, Impossible, almost impossible to think of or to conceive of. Uh, eliminating the sense of individual consciousness, this individual awareness, what I think of as me, my character, uh, and at the same time, completely unacceptable to just go through life as the, at, the, at the whim of what's happening around me, the victim of circumstances and events, completely out of control, suffering. So here we are in this dilemma, what to do, what to do. And, and as we begin the second chapter, uh, Arjuna is, has, has finally uh, admitted to Krishna. Now, Krishna represents enlightened consciousness, our own higher consciousness, our own higher awareness. And so uh, Arjuna says, I just don't know what to do. I give up. I can't fight. I can't see where there's a winning. Uh, there's any winning to this battle. Everybody loses. Uh, and I'm just not going to fight. I'm not going to do it. I don't know what to do. And so he is despondent and and this is where we begin in this second chapter and uh, a little aside which i think is it's fun because these things are all you know these stories are all metaphors they all represent aspects of ourself and aspects of being and reality and it's kind of interesting to be able to you know look at the symbology and the metaphor because some of it speaks to us so so the chariot that Arjuna is in represents the body, and it's pulled by five horses, which represent the senses. And Krishna is the charioteer. He's driving the chariot. He's enlightened consciousness. And on the chariot is a banner with a, uh, which has an image of Hanuman. And this, you know, this is really easy to overlook. It's kind of like, oh, you know, oh, Hanuman's the banner, but 
Um, in ancient times, for thousands of years, when tribes would be going to war, whether they were marching or whether they were on, you know, horses and chariots, there would always be a bannerman or they would have their own individual banners and the banner would have a symbol, an icon, that symbolized the source of their power. So I am fighting for the king. So I have the, you know, if I'm in old Britain, you know, you have the banner with the lion with the, you know, the paw up. So my power is coming from the king. And here we have this power coming from Hanuman, the power of Hanuman. So what's Hanuman? Who's Hanuman? Well, in, uh, in the Hindu mythology, and again, this mythology is also symbolic. It's all symbolic of inner processes. So Hanuman, um, well, originally in, in, up with the gods and the goddesses, uh, this goddess Anjana uh, had an interaction, unfortunate interaction somehow with the gods, one of the gods, and the god cursed her. And the curse was to have the face of a monkey. So poor Anjana is, is hanging around and she's got this monkey face and she's embarrassed and, you know, it's not really convenient, comfortable. And so Brahma, the chief god, takes pity on her and he sends her down to earth. And on earth, she meets up with a tribe that is half monkey, half men. So this was a tribe, you know, it was rumored to be in ancient India and South India um, eons ago. So... Anjana comes down and she she meets these people that look sort of like her. She falls in love with the king and marries the king. And Anjana has always been very devotional to Shiva. Now Shiva is represents creation and transformation. So Shiva is said to be the god of creation, transformation. If we look at the the icon, the statue, you know, the Nataraj, the dancing Shiva, he has a drum of vibration, creation in one hand, and a flame of change, transformation in the other hand. So this is this is what Shiva represents. And so Anjana is very devotional to Shiva. She prays to Shiva. She does the Shiva mantra, Om Namah Shivaya. And, and so she, she has this very uh, deep relationship with the Shiva aspect. And so, uh, and so she's down on earth, and Vayu, the god of the wind, very powerful, uh, takes pity on her and arranges for this kind of magical potion that was being handed out somewhere else. He gets a part of this and drops it in her hand, and she thinks it's a blessing, Prasad from Shiva, so she takes this, and this gives her, uh, empowers her, this gives her the ability to manifest her desire, which is to have Shiva, and so she has a son, and her son is Hanuman. Hanuman is an aspect, a representative of Shiva, representation or an incarnation of Shiva. So here's Hanuman, and Hanuman, because he is basically the son of a goddess and empowered by the god of the wind, um, has all the powers. As a matter of fact, if you if you look at the the old comic book hero Superman, Superman had all the characteristics of Hanuman. Only Hanuman's several thousand years older than Superman, of course. So he could fly. He was super powerful. He could go fast. He could hear forever. Um, amazed, super strong. Um, 
amazing. And as a child, because he had all these powers, he would get in trouble. I mean, he was out there doing like little kids do, getting, you know, creating problems. And because he was so powerful, he could create really big problems. And one day he jumped up and he looked at the sun and he thought it looked like a big, big piece of candy, a big sweet. And so he flew up to the sun to take a bite. And that was the last straw. So the sun god, Surya, said, hey, this is, you know, this kid is really becoming a problem. We have to do something about that. And so, and so they cursed uh, Hanuman, and, they, and the curse was that he would not know that he had all these powers. He had the powers, but he would not know that he had all these powers until somebody reminded him. And so he goes back now to being a kid, just like a normal kid, and he doesn't know he can do all these things. And so he grows up and he has, but he has all this tremendous power. And eventually he grows into a great warrior and is in the service of King Ram, Rama. And Ram is an incarnation of Vishnu. Vishnu is the preserver, that is the aspect which keeps everything going harmoniously and Shiva and, and, uh, and Vishnu have this beautiful relationship together. So, uh, so Hanuman becomes uh, one of the generals in Ram's army. And when Ram's wife, Sita, is um, captured by Ravana, the, the demon down in, South, down in Sri Lanka, she's uh, carried, taken away. And so now Hanuman, trying to help his master, Ram, um, goes down and arranges to try to get Sita back. They know where she is. He's figured out where she is. But there's this big giant gap between the end of India and, and uh, Sri Lanka. You know, it's like several miles. And nobody can get across this easily. And one of the, one of the, the, the friends, one of the people in the, in the army there, tells Hanuman, he says, you, you, have, you could just jump. You have the power to do this and reminds him of his power, and he goes, oh, oh, yeah. And so he's able to leap over this several miles and, and able to help uh, facilitate the rescue of Sita. So, and many stories about Hanuman. And Hanuman is totally devoted. His only desire in life is to support Ram. And all he does is, all the time, is just chant Ram, 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 you know, which is the supportive aspect of life. So he is extremely strong, extremely capable, extremely powerful, and extremely devotional, has no desire for anything for himself, only to serve. This is Hanuman. So we have this banner, this energy, this power that is empowering Arjuna. This is us. We have all this power within us. We can do anything that we can imagine. We have the power of God the power of this expressive manifesting universe within us because we are it. We're not separate from it. We're part of it. And so, so when we start this story, you know, it's good to uh, useful to remember these metaphors and to say, and, and to see, to acknowledge that underneath the conditionings and underneath the limitations and underneath the confusion and all this, there is this extremely powerful being that has the ability, the capacity to not only be fully awake, but also to interact and to relate and to fulfill purposes and to contribute to this unfolding evolutionary process of life. So, so it's nice to know that that's us, you see. 
this this is a metaphor this we're talking about our power our ability our capability so we have the the little uh, uh, flag the little banner of Hanuman flying all the time and available to us we can honor and acknowledge that as well so so here we are now, and, and Arjuna has, you know, he dropped his bow, he's given up, he's, he's kind of a wimp, you know, and, and he finally, he turns to Krishna and he says, I don't know what to do. I'm confused. You see, so now he's at a point where he's actually ready to listen. He's finally come to this place where he's now, he says, help me, I don't know. And of course, this is what <laughs> this is what uh, happens oftentimes when we get you know just totally at the end of our string. The dark night of the soul is is finally we acknowledge I don't know what to do, so I, I call a counselor or I go to a meeting or I get the, you know get a new spiritual book, go to a workshop, do something because I'm suffering and I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. And so now I've got, I'm in this position of being open and receptive, and this is where the process begins. This is where we can begin to really uh, make some changes, some internal changes, if we continue to be open and receptive. And so it's also useful to remember now that, that in this conversation that's about to take place, that the conversation is being relayed to King Dhritarashtra, this is his, his blind mind, deluded mind. So Dhritarashtra, the mind is sitting out here kind of separate from this whole thing and, and confused, you know, deluded. And Sanjaya, the counselor, the advisor, with intuition and clairvoyance is able to see what's happening in this field. And so so this whole story is being reported back to blind mind. The mind that's confused, that doesn't know what to do, is looking at this internal dialogue, what's going on, what's happening, and, um, and is reporting this back. So, so uh, Dhritarashtra says, what's going on down in the field? What's happening here? And Sanjaya says, well, Arjuna says this, and he's confused and, you know, um, feeling like a victim and doesn't know what to do. And now Krishna speaks. And the first line that Krishna, in the, in the first uh, stanza of Krishna speaking, the first thing it says is that Krishna looks at Arjuna and smiles. He says, you know, silly boy, don't you know this? You know, you're just seeing things all wrong. You don't have to be so stressed out about this. You're confused. But it's not a big deal, you know, and we can, you know, we can move past this. All you have to do is just kind of, you know, change your attention a little bit. So Arjuna becomes receptive and Krishna begins to tell him, begins to teach him. And he says, you are concerned with unnecessary things. It's, there's no point. There, you know, this is not necessary at all. Um, more important, what's useful is to see that there is one life behind everything one life behind everything and that everything in manifestation everything in expression everything we're looking at here is impermanent it's transient it's constantly changing it doesn't you know it doesn't persist and so and so you can 
become grounded, you can be, uh, develop this awareness um, and become receptive and see that life itself, this one life behind everything is indestructible. It's indestructible. It's it, whatever is embodied in some form, whatever is expressing in some form will come to an end and whatever and whatever ends will be reborn, will start again. And a quotation, a direct quotation is, those who think that the self, that is the essence of being, can slay or can be slain, fail to discern the truth. No one slays or is slain. No one slays and no one is slain. So how does this work? There is no separate being. There's nothing outside. This is all kind of a dance of consciousness, a play of consciousness. And then he goes into a little explanation about how consciousness comes into manifestation. So the title of this chapter is actually Samkhya, Samkhya Yoga. Samkhya is the philosophy of the expression or the manifestation of consciousness into form, into being. And basically, uh, it begins with this uh, concept, a model that says there is pure consciousness, pure conscious awareness, and an aspect of itself is expressive. The expressive aspect is, uh, is made up of three characteristics, qualities called gunas. These three characteristic qualities, the gunas are sattva, which is radiant, expansive, uh, tamas, which is uh, in, uh, which is compressive is uh, uh, the words is gone uh, inertia so the sense of inertia and restriction this is tamas and rajas is passion or movement between this inertia and this expression so we have expression on one side inertia on the other side and the passion the movement in between these and so these three are, are characteristics that are always together. There are never, you can't imagine or conceive of a separate place where there is one without the other two. And when the three of these are in perfect balance, when they're in perfect harmony, there is no manifestation, there is no expression. So, so this is prakriti, the expressive aspect, the potential for the expressive aspect, and purusha, consciousness conscious awareness and so it is said that when consciousness awareness observes prakriti when consciousness observes the gunas it causes the gunas to start to wobble to move and in this movement this interaction it creates a mutual arising and expression of time space motion and fine cosmic particles so this, come, this is, as soon as these start to move, as soon as these forces start to interact, because they are interacting, there, is, there has to be, there is this expression, this orderly expression of time, space, motion, light particles. And, and again, these four characteristics, we cannot think of any one without the other three. They're mutually inter independent, interdependent. So uh, for motion to happen, something has to be moving. So we have to have some particles or something. 
promotion to happen, we have to have change from one condition to another. So we have to have time. And there has to be some place where this is happening. So we have time, space, motion, light particles, all mutually arise out of the motion of these gunas as a result of consciousness observing. So this is the beginning of manifestation, of creation. And it is said then, as soon as this uh, expressive aspect begins to, to express, begins to unfold, it develops a sense of being, a sense of awareness, a sense of I, I exist, you see. This I existing, this I-ness is the cosmic mind. This is Mahat. This is the cosmic, uh, the cosmic chitta the blueprint for everything. And so this, uh, this aspect has intelligence. It has order. There's order that automatically comes in this expressive manifesting thing. It's not being designed by anybody. It just has this inherent order and this inherent intelligence within it. And within this intelligence evolves this ego, this cosmic ego, cosmic sense of I. And then from that, there are, again, interactions that continue and express being af affected and influenced by tamas, rajas, and sattvas, express as uh, the senses, the fine elements, and the fine senses, and the organs, the organs of perception, the organs of action, and all these um, unfold out of this orderly process of expression. So it's all one thing that is kind of playing and expressing and unfolding out of itself. And of course, the metaphor in the in our modern scientific world is the Big Bang. So we say, you know, there's no reason at some point things started banging. Um, uh, infinitesimal point of infinite energy, which is the energy of the entire universe, was contained in you know something smaller than the point of a pin. And for, for some reason, for no reason, it just started to expand and grow, explode into expression, into manifestation. So, you know, this is kind of a close enough metaphor. Consciousness took a look at this infinite energy and said, hmm, isn't that interesting? And here it goes. You know, it starts to explode, manifest, like we just had the 4th of July here in America. And everywhere you look in the sky, there is big bangs happening expressing and and flowering and turning into interesting things and so but it's all one thing it's there's no separation it's all coming out of one thing and so this is what krishna is trying to explain to arjuna this is who are you killing who can you you know nothing can be killed and nothing can be and you can't be killed because it's all part of this unfolding energetic consciousness in manifestation and it never changes. So consciousness is consistent. The expressive energy of the universe is consistent. Life is consistent. The true self is indestructible. True self, the essence of what we are, is indestructible. It will never change. It's eternal, stable, unmoving. And it can't be understood and it can't be defined by the mind, but it can be experienced. See? And so, and Krishna goes on in his trying to explain to coach Arjuna goes on to explain that, that whatever is born has to die and whatever dies 
for, for whatever dies, birth, rebirth is certain. So there is this transformative, this Shiva, you know, this transformation from form to form to form. And of course, we know this. I mean, we see this. We observe this in ourself. Um, I was looking in the mirror this morning and some remarkable changes have happened since I was looking in the mirror when I was seven years old. Uh, you know, there's been a kind of a constant uh, progression there. And uh, if we only look at it from seven years old to 73 years old, uh, it's quite dramatic. Uh, but if we look at it every single day, the change is slow enough and kind of, you know, it, it, it doesn't really rattle us too much. And, we, you know, we sort of just go with it and we don't notice the change, but the change is always happening. Uh, they tell us that, that all the molecules in our body are changed out every year. So the body is kind of like a river. You know, you look at the river and it looks like the same river every time you come to it. But all the water molecules are changed. They're always constantly flowing through. So the river has a form, but it's not the same river. It's not the same river from minute to minute. In the same way, what we think of as this body, this thing that we own and that we're, you know, in charge of, this body is a river of changing uh, expression, ch changing molecules, changing energy. All of this is flowing through us and in changing in expression, and we are, you know, getting to go along for the ride. You know, we are, the, we are not the body, we are not the mind, we are not the conditions, we are not the circumstances and events, we are not the effect of these things, we are consciousness. And, and when I looked in the mirror when I was seven years old, and when I looked in the mirror this morning, the same consciousness was looking out of these eyes, see? We've always been what we are. We've always been pure conscious awareness, but we forget. We become identified and we start to think that the, this individual independent consciousness, the character that we've created, we get, start to think that that's real, that that has independent existence. And this is Arjuna's problem. He says, I don't want to kill Bhishma, the sense of independent consciousness, you know individualized consciousness you know i don't want to destroy these things and krishna is trying to say you can't <laughs> i mean try as hard as you might you can't destroy this you know this is this is uh this is just an expression this is a dream you know it's sort of i love this this uh, metaphor again from hindu mythology where uh vishnu the preserver that was preserves and maintains the integrity and the support and the structure of this entire uh, cosmic drama. Uh, Vishnu is, is resting, sleeping on a, on a raft on the Milky Sea, being taken care of by his consort Lakshmi. And as he uh, rests there in the afternoon on the Milky Sea, he's dreaming and his dream is this world. So everything that's happening is the dream of God, Leela, they call it, you know, the play of God. And so, so we get to, we take things too seriously. We get too serious and get too involved, and we start to take all this as being important and having some independent existence that we then have to react to. And Krishna is trying to tell Arjuna to lighten up. See, this is not this is not the way things are are designed. And so he tells Arjuna, he says, "You should know your duty. You know, get up and do, and do what you're supposed to do." Take responsibility for expressing yourself. 
And if you don't do that, if you don't get up and fight, if you don't take responsibility, then, you know, um, Krishna sort of taunts him and he says, you know, if you don't engage, misfortune is going to fall upon you and people are going to talk. You're going to be in disgrace. Now, on one hand, you know, uh, threatening Arjuna with the fact that he's going to be in disgrace while at the same time he's telling him that it doesn't matter. You know, this is a little bit, uh, a little bit of a conflict in the story, but, um, but he's saying, you're going to be in disgrace. They're going to tell you, everybody's going to talk about the fact that you're a coward. You know, stand up and do your duty. This is what Krishna's saying. You know, be a man, man up here. And, and as you do so, you can do so with even-mindedness. You, you can be centered. You don't have, this is not something that you have to push around, but just simply do your duty. So stand up, be even-minded. And if you're even-minded, then the karmas will go away. Karma is uh, the, the results of action. So in this universe, the way this universe expresses Every action has a consequence, an effect. Every action produces an effect. And every effect becomes an action that will produce a further effect. So we have this cause and effect, cause and effect. So each thing we do is a cause, produces an effect. That effect then becomes a cause that will produce another effect. And the effects, the ones that are the effects that have not been neutralized, harmonized, balanced, these effects are karma. This is just basically unfinished business. And so, so what's happening to us today is, for, to a great degree, the result of what happened to us in the past. So our experiences of the past have created conditionings, created ways of thinking, ways of looking, expectations, memories, and all these different things come together to determine our next action. And so when we are deciding what we're going to do now, we bring to, we bring to play our memories and our experiences. And so these are karmas. These are things that influence our action. So am I totally free to do what I want to do? Well, not if I remember that one time in the past I tried this and it didn't work and I was embarrassed. And so now I can't do that. That's a karma. You see, these are conditionings that are affecting, influencing how we act now. And so what Krishna says is, if we're even-minded, if we're not, if we, you know, if we're not, uh, if we don't have uh, uh, an agenda about the effects or the results of what we're doing, but if we just do our duty even-mindedly, then we're not creating any more karma. Then we don't create more conditionings that will need to be, balanced or resolved in the future or that will affect or influence how we're acting in the future. See, he also says that, that no endeavor, nothing that we do is wasted. So even if it doesn't work, at least we learn something in the process, much better to engage, to get out there on the field of battle, you know, to be, to be uh, engaged in life and learning as we go much better to do this because we will make progress than to just sit here and wimp and, you know, complain and whine and be a victim and not know what to do. Get on the horse, you know, get out there and get busy and do something. If you don't know what to do, 
it doesn't matter. Just do something. Because in the doing of something, you will be led. You will, you will find connections. You will be guided. And things will begin to unfold and reveal themselves. But if you refuse to engage, if you're, not, if you're afraid of life and you're afraid of making a mistake, then you just keep yourself limited and constrained. And life doesn't have an opportunity to help you. Life doesn't have an opportunity to send the blessings and the grace that can be unfolding and liberating. See? So, so no endeavor is wasted and no obstacle can prevail. So no matter what is in front of us, what we see as an obstacle, if we are intentional and if we are keep moving in the direction of overcoming and moving around these obstacles, nothing can stand in our way. So what we perceive, what we think of as limitation, as obstacles, as problems, everything can be dealt with. Everything can be handled, you see. There is no need, there, there is no obstacle or no obstruction that will persist in the face of, you know, consciously moving ahead step by step, piece by piece. And eventually um, it either wears out or we are able to see our way through it or to see our way around it. And so, so nothing will stand in our way if we just engage, if we just take action, if we get, on the, get out there on the field and begin the process. And Krishna goes on to say that you have a right to the actions only, to doing what you do. This is what you have a right to. This is what to be concerned with. But you do not have a right to the results of your actions. And you should not be concerned with these. So we do what we're led to do, what we're guided to do. We, we engage in life and we do it the best we can. We do it as mindfully, as consciously, um, with full awareness. And if it works, wonderful. And if it doesn't work, we go, okay, that didn't work. So next time I'm going to change. But we don't get hung up on it. You see, we don't, we're not constantly obsessed with, is it working? Is it going to come out? How is it working? You know, we're not looking at what's in it for us. We're not looking for a reward because of what we do. I do this action. I expect people to respect me. I expect to get some money. I expect to have, you know, some respect. You know, I want some, maybe I'll get some more likes on Facebook, you know, because I, my action was to post the most beautiful picture. Um, but no, I've been unfriended on Facebook and disrespected. Oh my. You know. So we have this, you know, we have these dramas that we go through that are just totally irrelevant. Do what you have to do. You know what you, you know what you should be doing. And so you just do that and don't worry about how it's going to come out. Pay attention. If there's something to learn, if it doesn't work, great. I just got smarter. I just, I just gained some more power, some more knowledge. I know something that doesn't work very well. So now I won't do that, and I'm going to move ahead with something that does work, you see. So I'll try the next thing. And then Krishna advises Arjuna to be indifferent to what has been heard, what he's heard in the past, and what is yet to be heard. So this is uh, exactly the teaching that uh, Paramahansa Yogananda gave to Mr. Davis in their last meeting. He said, pay no attention to what others do or don't do or don't say or don't say and don't look to the left and don't look to the right and don't look behind you look straight ahead to the goal and go all the way and he was talking about self-realization but you know this is the 
This is the teaching for anything to see what we're, what is our job? What are we led to do? What is our, uh, what will be fulfilling? What, what, what can we do to be living on purpose, accomplishing our purpose? So what is that? And then we engage and we don't let other people talk us out of it and tell us why it won't work and how challenging it is. Um, but rather we stay committed and we take the action, move ahead. And again, in the process, if it works well, great. If it doesn't work well, great. You know, we continue. We don't let it rattle us, put us off. Um, and so in the process, our intelligence becomes stabilized. We start to become empowered because we are acting intentionally. We're acting on purpose. And when our intelligence becomes stable, then we're no longer bewildered and no longer uh, confused. And Krishna actually spends, uh, spends a few sutras in here talking about uh, sort of the danger, the problem with scripture, reading scripture and philosophy. He says, all, you know, all this is going to do is just get you more confused. So, so even though we're reading the scripture, um, he's saying, you know, better to be active and better to be using your mind and being and contemplating and opening your awareness than to be spending a lot of time discussing philosophy and going into scripture. Instead, we can awaken to this flawless, insightful knowledge that is within us. We have awareness. We have all knowledge of everything because our mind is a portion of God's mind. And so we can learn to rely on our own intuition, on our own intelligence. You know, we can learn to do this and become stable in, in trusting our own inner knowledge. Our own, we know what to do. We really do. But sometimes we just have a hard time, you know, uh, standing up and doing what it is that we know we should do because there's, there's resistance, you know, there's some resistance. So, so we can kind of overpower, come through this by being very intentional about our action, being bold and willing to get out there on the field of life and engage and, you know, have this, have this opportunity um, to experience and to express. So, so this is how we, you know, we move into the middle of this second chapter where Krishna is telling Arjuna, you know, that you have missed the point. Understand, look at, understand and contemplate and get become aware of the fact that there is only one thing. It's all God. And all those obstacles, all those things that you see as problems on one side, they're all just God and expression and all the things that are wonderful and blessed that you are trying, aspiring to, they're all God and they're all, you know, here. And so, so your, um, your impulse to wake up and to purify your vehicle and to purify your consciousness and your awareness, this is a, a worthy battle. This is a worthy battle to engage and sort of say, okay, I'm no longer going to be, the effect of the senses. I'm no longer going to be uh, the effect of whims and, and uh, uncontrolled desires. And, you know, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this uh, craziness that creates so much suffering. Um, Krishna says, when we dwell on the objects of the senses and we're, you know, so focused on what's, what we're 
touching, tasting, feeling, uh, thinking about the pleasures, the addictions, all this, when we're focused on the objects of the, the senses and dwell on these, then this produces attachment. We become attached to sensation. And of course, aversion is negative attachment. So we can be dwelling on things we really don't want. This works the same way. So dwelling on the objects of the senses creates this attachment. So we are, you know, attracted to these things. And this attraction, this attachment leads to desires. So I think about that, you know, beautiful bowl of strawberry ice cream that I haven't been allowing myself. And I think, wow, strawberry ice cream is even better today because it's like almost 90 degrees and it's you know and i haven't had strawberry ice cream for a while and i start to kind of think about this and dwell on this and then so so now i have this desire that emerges for my strawberry ice cream but then there's no strawberry ice cream within several miles i have to get in a car and drive you know 10 miles to the store to be able to get the strawberry ice cream hoping that they have some organic of course because that's all we allow ourselves and and so if we're really if our desires are thwarted if we're frustrated by the fact that we can't fulfill our desires then what happens is we become angry upset so it's a natural progression so from uh, from attachment to desire to frustration and anger. And anger leads to confusion. So when we get angry, we're not thinking clearly anymore. We get confused. And when we're confused, this impairs, this impairs our memory, impairs our ability to memory and to think clearly. Discernment is then diminished. We're no longer discerning. We don't think clearly. We don't see accurately. And Finally, the result is that one wanders aimlessly. Dazed and confused, lost, what to do, what to do. You know. So this is, a, this is the progression. This happens from obsession with the senses, attachment, desire, frustration, anger, confusion, and finally, it, we're just wandering around. We don't know what to do, see, except... We're frustrated because our desires aren't acting, aren't being uh, fulfilled, and this creates more obstacles and confusion. And so here we are. So much better to be engaged. See, I remember uh, remember a, a line from uh, from a song that I loved many many years ago. This is kind of aging, but a rock group named Pink Floyd had a, a line in one of their songs that said. Um, let me see if I can get this right. Something like, uh, would you pr- prefer a walk-on part in a war or a lead role in a cage? Being engaged, being involved, getting out there, you know, being involved in the battle of life or to be stuck in this little cage. You know, you can be the hero of your story limited, confined, or you can take a chance and get out there and get involved and engaged in life, be um, on the field of Dharma Chetra, Kuru Chetra, and growing, becoming empowered and living consciously and mindfully. This is what we can do. Uh, So that's enough for today. And tomorrow we'll continue uh, because now we come to the place in the second chapter 
where Arjuna asks Krishna, he says, well, you know, what are the characteristics of someone who's awake, who's firmly established in self-knowledge? What, you know, how does that person live? What's that like? And so tomorrow we'll talk about uh, what are the characteristics, the qualities of one who is established in self-knowledge. So this can help give us a little, little direction for ourself to give us a, you know, a template to line up to. So, uh, any questions? No? Good. Well, we have a, a beautiful Wednesday in front of us. Um, uh, this is the, the day that's ruled by Mercury, Lord Buddha. So we can all say, Om Buddhaya Namaha. Acknowledge the, acknowledge the grace of Mercury and um, be joyful and blessed and be nice to each other. Take it to, and make sure you take some time to love, to laugh, and to be fully engaged in life. Namaste.